0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It had to be quite a sight in this little pioneer town of Springfield in Sangamon County, Illinois. An area that had kind of just been settled 10 years before soldiers from the 1812 War. Remember having gone into this area in Illinois and there was just a small path a little bit less rough than the other areas through the trees and through the wilderness, that they named after the commander, the Edwards Trace. And a few of those 1812 soldiers decided to settle in scattered log cabins. Tiny towns developed, sometimes just on paper. Ooh, there's a good spot here by the Illinois or the Sangamon River. Springfield starts as a prospective town. So it was quite a sight when a steamboat pulls up. This is the story of the one. To the first settlers of Illinois, so writes John Carroll Power in his History of the Early Settlers of Sangamon County, Illinois. To the first settlers of Illinois, transportation was of unusual importance on account of the vast extent of undrained soil, so rich and soft as to be almost impassable. For transportation of heavy articles long distances, no other mode was possible. Nothing could be thought of to get through that sod except traveling by water. There could be conveyed three to four times the distance in that way, much cheaper than a straight line by any known method. And so when the talesman comes from Cincinnati, February 2nd, 1832, trying this new route of trade, takes the Ohio River, takes the Mississippi River, the Illinois River, and then the Sangamon River into this central area of Illinois that everybody's talking about nationwide but is not well-traveled. It's going to load up on farm goods and take them to St. Louis. The Sangamon River isn't ready for prime time, so to speak, so they get a group of young men to clear brush, to take trees out of the river, to cut trees that might be overhanging and blocking the ship's way. One of them is Abraham Lincoln. No surprise, right? I mentioned Illinois. You know I'm going to mention him, right? (music) He not only helps clear out the Sangamon River, but helps pilot the ship out. Unfortunately, the ship can get to Springfield, but can't turn around. The river's not deep enough, not wide enough to make the turn, and it'll have to reverse its engine. Residents cannot remember another steamboat trying to reach Springfield in this way. By the time anyone would, railroads had been invented. But one thing that the trip of the talesman does is burn into the mind of that young worker, soon to be an Illinois legislator, the importance of internal improvements. My politics are short and sweet, like the old woman's dance. I'm in favor of a national bank. I'm in favor of the internal improvement system. I'm in favor of a protective high tariff. And when he spoke of internal improvements, that's simply the 19th century word for infrastructure. As a 19-year-old, he worked on an infrastructure project, the Louisville-Portland Canal in Kentucky, breaking up. Pieces of land expanding a canal with a pickaxe. He later made money transporting goods. And at the urging of a local businessman, he chopped down trees, made a flatboat, loaded it with farm goods and animals, and took it down to New Orleans. Rode back in a steamboat. And when he was chosen to represent Sagamon County in the state capital, he made voting for canals, roads, bridges, internal improvements part of his political career. Sangamon, named uh, either by French traders who had operated in the area around Illinois in the 1760s, or coming from an Indian word, is in the center of the state. And because of that, it had a fascinating demographic that there were settlers coming from the Carolinas, from Upper Virginia, from Kentucky, but there were also settlers coming from parts north. There was something about Sangamon. Just like most of the American West, there was this continual problem that as settlers moved forth from the East Coast, over the Alleghenies, across the Mississippi, There's great land that's vacant, that's abundant, that especially the land around Sangamon, because it was originally thought that it would not be arable, that it was, and that you could plow through the sod with a little bit of struggle. And this vacant land started to become one of the most popular places to move, including a man named Thomas Lincoln, who was Abraham Lincoln's father. Because it was growing so fast and population. Here's what a historic guide to Sangamon County says. Life was primitive and the first arrivals necessarily were hardy and self-sufficient. Most arrived with their possessions in an ox-drawn wagon. But Hardy Council and his wife Jane rode two horses from Carmi to Fancy Creek in 1819. Her horse also carried a sack of wheat and their household utensils while he brought tools and farm implements. With a grubbing hoe, they dug up the seedbed for an acre and a half wheat. There are other examples of hardships and determination. David McCoy, one of the first to settle outside the timber, reached Gardner Township earlier that year with a prairie-breaking plow among his possessions. To break the sod, he held the plow handles. Mary McCoy drove the oxen, and their baby slept in a cradle, lashed to the plow beam. Annually, he went to St. Louis to trade strained honey and deerskins for groceries. Elizabeth Prim recalled that in 1820, while riding horseback at the site of Springfield, she used one hand to keep the tall prairie grass from the face of the baby she carried. John Dixon, a former New York merchant, spent the winter of 1820 nine miles north of Springfield, but sold his preemption rights and went northward to found the city of Dixon, Illinois. Maxwell Campbell, a North Carolinian, and his pregnant wife, Nancy, arrived northeast of Pleasant Plains in 1823 in a homemade ox cart whose wheels were solid wood. While three crops were raised, the ox was their only transportation. They lived in a small hut and delayed the raising of a standard-sized cabin for two years until they could afford to buy two gallons of whiskey. Cabin raising required the help of neighbors who expected refreshments. Greenbury Dawson McGinnis used his last quarter of a dollar to buy whiskey for a house raising so that his new neighbors would not think him stingy. The cabin was close to the Lick Creek timber and the neighbors predicted that if cattle were wintered on the prairie, their horns would freeze and drop off. Large families were the rule and the McGinnises raised nine children in the cabin. Among rugged pioneers were Mrs. and Mrs. John Pike and their three children who spent the winter of 1829 in a tent south of Rochester, Illinois. Thomas Lincoln comes there. He's not quite happy, but Abraham Lincoln doesn't want his father to move again. They've already moved Kentucky, Indiana, and now Illinois. It's kind of interesting because the town that Lincoln's from, New Salem, um, one writer described it aptly as just being there for Lincoln when he needed it for his own development. Because a town becomes a ghost town. It grows from being just one tavern, the Rutledge Tavern, and there's going to be a romance between the daughter of that tavern, possibly, and Mr. Lincoln. A general store sprouts up. Gen- you know, Lincoln's going to work in that general store. Many log cabins, a blacksmith. And today you can go there and these buildings are reconstructed. But what happens is just a 10 years or so after New Salem's great development, nothing's left but that original Rutledge Tavern. It's, it's infrastructure driven. Eventually it didn't make sense to trade in that town anymore. And Springfield and Petersburg got the action. And Lincoln, as much as he was a young man and owed New Salem for his um, development, was instrumental later as a politician in defining the counties and seats in a way that would seal New Salem's fate. I mean, it was kind of already happening. It wasn't only Lincoln's decision. As a young candidate running in a field of eight people to be the legislator for New Salem, Lincoln, who's the proprietor of the general store, and people know him for that reason, makes something very clear. He will support a canal that will bring ships To the trading area, and who will finance that with the sale of public lands by the state. His support for the canal and generally that people trust Lincoln gives him third place in a race of eight people. He'll win his next election. His greatest move as a legislator is bringing the capital of the state of Illinois to his central region, this area that there's just something about, and word spreads to the Carolinas, to Virginia, you have to go to central Illinois. Some of it is hype. It's a lot of work, as we discussed. The largest town in Sangamon was Springfield. But at the times we're talking about it, it was a speculative, promotional town. The town was first called Calhoun. But as they sold unit lots, that name representing the former vice president was too political it had some log cabins mostly owned by the owners two main owners isles and enos it was slow going lots were selling for 15 to 50 dollars it had to fight off a rival claim from sangamon town which although there is absolutely no buildings there had a great view of the sangamon river the owner of Sangamon Town, the single owner, was William Hamilton, who is the son of Alexander. Fortunately for the way history would turn out and Springfield's later fame, this member of the Hamilton family would not be successful in his pursuit and would move on eventually going to California's gold fields. Springfield, really starting in the late 1820s, will become the state capital of Illinois in 1837. At that time, Abraham Lincoln, he's in charge of the Whig faction in the Illinois state legislature. And one of the things that he is going to push is internal improvements. The Whigs um, opposing Jackson. And Jackson had just recently vetoed a bill which specifically called for a large internal improvement of a road in Kentucky, the Maysville Road. And that set the battle between Democrats and Whigs. Whigs for infrastructure, Democrats against it. But it wasn't exactly so true because in the Illinois legislature, Lincoln would work to get a bill passed, a significant bill, for roads, canals, and railroads with the help of Stephen Douglas, a Democrat who would be his rival in the legislature and be his rival throughout the rest of Lincoln's political career. Here's what a friend of Lincoln said. We ran perfectly wild on the subject of internal improvements. Every member wanted a road in his county or town. A great many of them got one. And those counties through which no road was authorized were to be compensated in money, which was to be obtained by a loan from Europe or God knows where. That's right. Lincoln and a group of legislators known as the Long Nine because they were all tall men are able to get Illinois to pass an improvement bill for money that the state really doesn't have. Douglas, who's a Democrat, says that so strong was the feeling of popular opinion in favor of the bill that it was hazardous for any politician to oppose it. With meetings around the state instructing representatives to vote for the act, I did not feel at liberty to disobey. The reason that Douglas is going to make this kind of a defensive statement is that, unfortunately, for the Illinois legislature, they're going to run up against the panic of 1837 and not be able to finish or finance these projects easily. Now there's two significant projects to that you want to talk about. Um, let's start with the Illinois Michigan Canal. There is a relatively small area of there is a relatively small stretch of land between Lake Michigan and the Illinois River. And then the Illinois River connects to the Mississippi. So it had been known since the time of the French fur traders who were led by Native American guides through this area that if you could just You just had to get through, maybe carrying your canoes or what have you through this kind of muddy area. Uh, you could get very quickly to the major waterways. So the idea had always been out there that uh, it might be possible to dig a canal here, but it's only in the 1830s when there's the will to do it, and the Illinois legislature passes legislation for the Illinois Central Canal. Work starts on it in 1836. It stopped for several years after the panic. It resumes. The state commission that runs the canal gives it the only thing that the state of Illinois has at this point, which is land. And through a land grant of 284,000 acres, which they sell, they raise money to finance the construction. They still have to borrow money, which was very common in these times for Western states from British investors and U.S. investors, mostly in New England. Irish immigrants did the work on the canal. It's finally finished in 1848. The cost is $6 million. It's a 60-foot canal wide and 6 feet deep. Mules will carry barges. Here's the effect of the canal. It builds the city of Chicago. City of Chicago goes from being a minor town of of little importance to being a giant city. 1840, Chicago's a town of 4,000 persons. By 1850, right after this canal is built, 29,000 people. Ten more years as we get into the Civil War, as there's going to be an important contest, which is wholly based around this very important swing state. There will be 112,000 people in Chicago. It'll more than double again in the next decade. It's just a constantly growing city, and it's a result of this canal traffic. Chicago, generally, generally speaking, is an area that supports either um, restrictions on slavery or a kind of Douglas-like Nebraska Act system. But with the goal, if you're thinking of it from a Chicago viewpoint at that point, that there's going to be plenty of northern People moving into territories, making some of these states free states. So that's what you have. You, you've you brought in 90,000 people, mostly with anti-Southern views of the slavery question. What's a quicker way of saying all this? Infrastructure defeats slavery, in a sense. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Lincoln becomes a congressman. It's kind of odd how he does it. He's representing a very Whig district, and there are several potential candidates, so what they decide to do instead of competing with each other, they'll rotate, and Lincoln gets his turn in 1860, in 1846, just in time to battle President Polk on the reasons behind fighting the Mexican War. Here's what he writes in response to the, a letter with an assertion made by his young law partner, William Herndon, taking care of things in the Springfield office while he is a congressman in 1848. Dear William, your letter of the 29th was received last night being exclusively a constitutional argument. I wish to submit some reflections upon it in the same spirit of kindness that I know actuates you. Let me first state what I understand to be your position. It is that if shall become necessary to repel invasion, the president may, without violation of the Constitution, cross the line and invade the territory of another country, and that whether such necessity exists in any given case, the President is to be the sole judge. Before going further, consider, well, whether this or this is not your position. If it is, it is a position that neither the President himself, referring to President Polk, Democrat, nor any friend of his so far as I know, has ever taken. Their only positions are, first, that the soil was ours where hostilities commenced, and second, that whether it was rightfully ours or not, Congress had annexed it, and the President, for that reason, was bound to defend it. Both of which are clearly proved to be false, in fact, as you can prove that your house is not mine, that soil was not ours, and Congress did not annex or attempt to annex it. It's interesting. The provision of the Constitution, Lincoln says, giving the war-making power to Congress was dictated, as I understand it, for the following reasons. Kings had always been involving and impoverishing the people in wars, pretending generally, if not always, that the good of the people was the object. This our convention understood to be the most oppressive of all kingly oppressions, and they resolved so as to frame the Constitution that no one man should hold the power of bringing this oppression upon us. But your view destroys the whole matter, and places our president where kings have always stood. Write soon again, yours truly, so... Herndon and him would always go back and forth. He was the elder law partner, and, you know, Herndon didn't even know Lincoln that well. He's actually going to end up, uh, you know, he knew him more in a business sense. He's going to end up writing a biography of him in his later years because he never knew much about him, you know. Uh, But they did uh, definitely discuss political issues, and Lincoln was always pushing Herndon to get more involved in politics, and particularly to get people organized to help the Whigs, and perhaps himself. Um, Why do I bring this up? Because you're going to see Lincoln take a lot of positions. And I think here's another one for abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia. He supports this as a congressman in the 1840s. It won't get done until he's president. Here's what he proposes in an amendment. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of the Representatives of the United States of America, in Congress assembled, that no person, not now, within the District of Columbia, nor now owned by any person or persons, now resident within it, nor hereafter born within it, shall ever be held in slavery within said district. So, it's not something that's going to pass, but I think um, what pays the bills for this politics
1: At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Its political juice is the three components that Lincoln outlined when he said his, his reasons for becoming a legislator. And that is internal improvements... Tariffs and a national bank, all of which are connected because you need those other two elements to finance the improvements. Here's a speech that Lincoln makes on the floor of the House of Representatives on internal improvements. Mr. Chair, at an early day of this session, the President sent us what may be properly called an internal improvement veto message. The late Democratic Convention, which sat at Baltimore and nominated General Cass for the presidency, adopted a set of resolutions now called the Democratic Platform, among which is these words, that the Constitution does not confer upon the general government the power to commence and carry on a general system of internal improvements. General Cass, in his letter accepting the nomination, holds this language, I have carefully read the resolutions of the Democratic Party National Convention laying down the platform of our political faith, and I adhere to them as firmly as I approve them cordially. These things taken together show that the question of internal improvements is now more distinctly made, has become more intense than in any former period. It can no longer be avoided. Two things to notice. Lincoln the logician, right? He's linking, here's the platform, and then here's the candidate saying he's agreed with the platform. Even if he doesn't have cast down as saying, I don't like internal improvements, he uses logic to, to deduce that. Uh, but also he's talking about, now the Democrats in 1848 are making an issue about improvements on the negative side, when before, as had been his experience, he worked with Democrats to pass such improvements. The issues become politicized now. The veto message in the Baltimore Resolution, I understand, to be in substance the same thing, the latter being the more general statement, of which the former is the amplification, the bill of particulars. Well, I know there are many Democrats on this floor and elsewhere who disapprove that message. I understand that all that shall vote for General Cass will thereafter be counted on as having approved it, having endorsed all its doctrines. He goes on to take on all of the, uh, the ideas. One of the common attacks on improvements, for instance, when Andrew Jackson makes his veto of Maysville Road is that, well, the burden is shared by everybody, but only a local area benefits from it. Lincoln takes this on. The burdens of improvement would be general, while their benefits would be local and partial, involving an obnoxious inequality. That there is some degree of truth this disposition, I shall not deny. No commercial object of government patronage can ever be so exclusively general as to not be of some peculiar local advantage. But on the other hand, nothing is so local as to not be of general advantage. The Navy, as I understand it, was established and is maintained at a great annual expense, partly to be ready for war when war shall come, or for the protection of our commerce on the high seas. This is the same, in principle, as internal improvements. The driving of a pirate from the track of commerce on the broad ocean and the removing of a snag from its more narrow path in the Mississippi River cannot, I think, be distinguished in principle. Each is done to save life and property, and for nothing else. Lincoln reviews some of the objections to internal improvements presented by the Democratic President Polk and others. That internal improvements ought not to be made by the general government, he's meaning the federal government, he's meaning Congress. One, because they would overwhelm the Treasury. Two, because while their burden would be general, their benefits would be local and partial. We talked about that. Three, because they would be unconstitutional. Four, because the states may do enough by the levy and collection of tonnage duties. Or if not, five, that the Constitution may be amended. Do nothing at all, lest you do something wrong, Lincoln says, is the sum of these positions. It's the sum of this message. Do nothing at all lest you do something wrong. And this, with the exception of what is said about constitutionality, applying as forcefully to making improvements by state authority as by national authority. So, there you go. So what he's saying is basically most of your objections, except for the constitutional one, which he'll deal with. Like, whether you do this at the state level, whether Illinois funds a canal or whether the Congress does, It's all the same objections. But then he goes after some of the objections. And this is interesting because these are the same objections that you're going to hear today, just bigger numbers and different types of materials and things that we're building. The first position is that a system of internal improvements would overwhelm the Treasury. That in such a system, there is a tendency to undo expansion. It's not to be denied. Such a tendency is founded in the nature of the subject. A number of colleagues will prefer voting for a bill that contains an appropriation for his district. But Lincoln says this is any more true in Congress than it is in a state legislature? No. If a member of Congress must have an appropriation for his district, so a member of the legislature must have one for his county. And if one will overwhelm the national treasury, so the other will overwhelm the state treasury. Go where it will. The difficulty is the same. Allow it to drive us from the halls of Congress, and it will just so easily drive us from the state legislatures let us then grapple with it and test its strength let us judging of the future by the past ascertain whether there may not be in the discretion of congress a sufficient power to limit and restrain a sufficient power to limit and restrain this expansive tendency within reasonable and proper bounds the president himself values the evidence of the past He tells us that at a certain point in our history, more than 200 millions of dollars had been applied for to make improvements. And this he does to prove that the Treasury would be overwhelmed by such a system. Why did he not tell us how much was granted? Would not that have been better evidence? Let us turn to it and see what it proves. In the message, the President says, During the four succeeding years embraced by the administration of President Adams, the power not only to appropriate money, but to apply it under the direction and the authority of the general government, as well as to the construction of the roads, as the improvement of harbors and rivers was fully asserted and exercised. This, if any, must have been the days of those two hundred millions. And how much do you suppose was really expended for improvements during those four years? This is during the time that Lincoln's preferred group is in office. Two hundred millions. 100? 50? 10? 5? No, sir, less than two millions, as shown by the authentic documents, the expenditures and improvements. These four years were the period of Mr. Adams' administration nearly and substantially. When the power was fully asserted and exercised, the Congress did keep within reasonable limits. And as it has been done before, can be done again. Uh, to the constitutionality of, um, I, I don't want to belabor that because this is a point that in modern times has pretty much been. We we know the general government, federal government, can spend for roads and improvements. It was always a bit of a known issue that that most people supposed that the while the Constitution doesn't expressly say it that Congress had the power to spend on internal improvements that would be of national importance as decided by the Congress. You know, you have some comments from Jefferson and then also Monroe that perhaps there should be a constitutional amendment to ensure that we can do this. It's one of Monroe's last messages to Congress. He says, you know, you ought to pass a constitutional amendment for all of this um, internal improvements, but Congress nonetheless does it. And that's, that's Lincoln has a lot, and he has some Supreme Court decisions that he gets into. I won't bore you with that. Mr. Chairman, for the purpose of reviewing this message in the least possible time, as well as for the sake of distinctness, I wish to detain the committee only a little while longer with some general remarks on the subject of improvements. That the subject is a difficult one cannot be denied. Still, it is no more difficult in Congress than in the state legislatures, in the counties, or in the smallest municipal districts where they exist. Lincoln knows this from his experience. All can recur to instances of this difficulty in the case of county roads, bridges, and the like. One man is offended because a road passes over his land, and another is offended because it does not pass over his. One is dissatisfied because the bridge for which he is taxed crosses the river on a different road from that which leads to his house or town. Another cannot bear that the county should be gotten to debt for these same roads and bridges. While not a few struggle hard to have roads located over their lands, and then stoutly refuse to let them be opened until they are first paid the damages. Even between the different wards, the streets, the towns, the cities, we can find this wrangling, this difficulty. Now, these are no other than the very difficulties against which and out of which the president constructs his objection of inequality, speculation, and crushing the treasury. There is but a, this, these were objections that Polk presented to building internal improvements. There is but a single alternative about them: they are sufficient or they are not. If sufficient, they are sufficient out of Congress as well as in it. We must reject them as insufficient, or lie down and do nothing by any authority. Then, difficulty though there be, let us meet and encounter it. Attempt the end, and never stand to doubt. Nothing so hard but search will find it out. Determine the thing that can and shall be done, and then we shall find the way. The tendency to undo expansion is unquestionably the chief difficulty. How to do something and still not do too much is the desideratum. Let each contribute his might in the way of suggestion. One of the gentlemen from South Carolina, Mr. Red, very much depreciates these statistics. He particularly objects, as I understand him, to counting all the pigs and chickens in the land. I do not perceive much force in the objection. It is true that if everything be enumerated, a portion of such statistics may be useful to this object. Such products of the country are to be consumed where they are produced. Need no roads and rivers, no means of transportation, and have no very proper connection to this subject. The surplus, that which is produced in one place to be consumed in another, the capacity of each locality for producing a greater surplus... The natural means of transportation, and their susceptibility of improvement, the hindrances, delays, and loss of life and property during transportation, and the causes of each would be among the most valuable statistics in this connection. From these it would readily appear, where a given amount of expenditure would do the most good, those statistics might be equally accessible as they would be useful to both the nation and the states. I have no particular interest to the subject, but just showing how interesting it is to be a congressperson in the 1840s. Lincoln says he's getting hundreds of letters, so he has a lot of correspondence to respond to among them. Just because you're Abraham Lincoln and you're a congressman doesn't mean you don't have to deal with your parents. So he's 30, his father's about 70. To Thomas Lincoln... Your letter of the seventh was received night before last. I very cheerfully send you the $20, which some you say is necessary, to save your land from sale. It's singular that you should have forgotten a judgment against you, and it's more singular that the plaintiff should have let you forget it for so long, particularly as I suppose you have always had property enough to satisfy a judgment of that amount. Before you pay it, it would be well to be sure that you have not paid it, or at least that you cannot prove that you have paid it. Affectionately, your son. So it's kind of like a, a $20 with a lecture. Uh, to another, dear Johnson, your request for $80, I do not think it best to comply with now. At the various times when I've helped you a little, you have said to me, we can get along very well now, but in a short time I find you in the same difficulty again. <laughs> Let's see who this is. John, John D. Johnson. And I confess I'm not top of mind Lincoln expert now this is Lincoln's stepbrother he actually uh, what defect is I think I know you're not lazy and still you are an idler I doubt whether since I saw you you have done a good whole day's work in any day so Lincoln makes him an offer if you go to work for every dollar you make I will match it up to this amount but I just won't give you the money That's what he says to his stepbrother. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
1: I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana.
0: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary carabell and Emma Vavalucus dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Mook on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Walter Davis, a friend. Friend Walter, your letter is received when I last saw you. When I last saw you, I said that if the distribution of the offices should fall into my hands, you should have something. And now I say as much, but can say no more. I know no more now than when I knew when you saw me as to the whether the present officers will be removed or if they shall, whether I shall be able to name some persons to fill them. So Zachary Taylor, a Whig, has been elected. Lincoln was a strong proponent and fighter for Zachary Taylor on the floor of Congress and in Illinois. So there's some thought maybe he might get a land office. He ends up not getting that. And there's also some thought that... Uh, yeah, he might be have some say about offices in Illinois. He does not. And Walter Davis doesn't quite understand the message because Herndon, um, he writes to Herndon later, There must be some mistake about Walter Davis saying I promised him the post office. I did not so promise him. I did tell him that if the distribution of offices should fall into my hands, he should have something. And then about that land office to David Davis, I do not doubt much that I could take the land office if I would. I would also, it would also make more money than I could otherwise make. Still, I remember that every man in the state who wants the office for himself would be snarling at me about it. I shrink from it. Later, he writes to Josiah Lucas, another lawyer in Springfield, your letter of the 15th is just received. Like you, I fear the land office is not going as it should, but I know nothing I can do. In my letter written three days ago, I told you, the department understands my wishes. Later, he finds out, uh, I learned from Washington that a man by the name of Butterfield will probably be appointed commissioner of the general land office. This ought not to be. That is about the only crumb of patronage which Illinois expects. And I am sure the mass of general taylor's friends here would quite as lief see see it go east of the alleghanies or west of the rocky mountains as into that man's hands they're already sore on the subject of his getting office in the great contest of 1840 he was not seen nor heard of but when the victory came three or four old drones including him got all the valuable offices so there you go anyway those are some of the correspondence of a congressman in uh, at that time Two more things to say about Lincoln and infrastructure, the issue that really consumed his, his, um, his life, his political life and his personal life. <laughs> um, one is that Lincoln was a big supporter of railroads. The Illinois Central Railroad, we didn't get to mentioning much about it before, is a project that he tries to start as part of those legislature, uh, that Long Nine legislative group in the 1830s because of the panic it isn't able to get started there are railroads eventually built in illinois with federal help in the 1850s stephen douglas is also very useful for getting these done lincoln is a railroad lawyer his legal Work with the railroads when he's not a politician is essential for getting them to be able to be run through counties without having to pay excessive taxes in each county, without having to pay excessive taxes to the state of Illinois for what the the state thought its value was versus what a reasonable value might be. Uh, Lincoln is able to save the railroad a lot of money and really keep the railroad operating without going bankrupt. Um. As president, there are two acts that are important. One is he'll sign the transcontinental railroad bill that will, after his death, see a railroad built all the way out to California. He'll also support the Morrill Land Grant Act, which, although not infrastructure in the most pedestrian way of thinking about it, uses a land grant system to allow states to use federal land sales and income from that to build colleges University of California Ohio State University Cornell Texas A&M are all colleges that are a result of Lincoln signing the Morrill Bill and it will build land grant universities all over the nation The only thing that uh, the act of Justin Morrill a Vermont congressman requires is that money from the sale of the federal land 30,000 acres of federal land for each congressman the state has, if there's not land available, they get land scrip that can be used to support at least one college with the primary purpose of teaching agriculture and the mechanical arts, to promote the liberal and practical education of the industrial classes in the several pursuits and professions of life. Now, in a way, by bringing Lincoln up with any issue, we're kind of attaching a positive spin to it, and I'm aware of that. I think it normalizes an issue that something's not new over time, particularly Abraham Lincoln was for it. I also think it contextualizes that throughout American history, there has been this need for internal improvement. It's not something that just happened now. Um, you constantly see population shifts and when it shifts, you have to adjust the infrastructure around it. There are some negatives and these show up in Lincoln's time as well. For instance, the very Pacific Railroad that we talked about. There's going to be large scandals involving uh, Oak Ames, members of Congress receiving bribes from the companies that are doing that railroad work, the various canals and railroads that um, the Illinois projects are going to be fanciful, over, under budgeted, oversold gonna cost more than what they can do. But on the other hand, the Illinois-Michigan Canal will operate, you know, it'll reach its peak twenty years after, forty years after it's built, twenty years after the Lincoln dies, twenty years after Lincoln dies, and it'll operate up until nineteen thirty three, almost one hundred years of operation. There's also the point to be made with infrastructure that shouldn't should be a Whether it's positive or negative is going to depend on your view of things. That there's often, maybe always, a political connection to the spending of money. That just, you know, Henry Clay was attempting to build an American system, but also a political system. That using tariffs to fund capital projects, his party would be kept in power. Certainly, Lincoln and his allies had their eyes on that in Illinois. There might not be a Whig party if not for the need for internal improvements. And so, you know, that just goes to one of these, you're enabling whichever government is in power and providing them with more money to spend. So if you happen to like the president and and those filling the executive offices at the current time, you'll like it you may not like it down the road if there's still money to be spent um with a different congress or a different president so there's um i think what lincoln gives in his speech is to you know examine the actual benefit of each and not to have some fanciful fear of infrastructure spending right. still has a lot of wisdom I want to thank you for listening the website is www. My History Can Beat Up your Thanks so much for your support. If you like the podcast, remember to recommend it to others.